and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin from ImpulseMedia.tv joins me to discuss all kinds of fun stuff. Man, what have you been up to? Oh boy, um, I've actually been building a video server because computer stuff is cool. I've got uh, eight <laughs> two terabyte uh, Western Digital Enterprise drives uh, that I'm putting in a big fat RAID so that uh, we can have multiple people editing and rendering off of the same shared storage. So playing around with uh, RAID cards and batteries and all kinds of uh, crap like that that <laughs> has nothing really to do with video, but highly technical stuff that's always uh, always fun to experiment and play with. Now, what are you networking all these systems together with? Are you just streaming it over a regular network? Or are you using, like, uh, FireWire? Or, or not FireWire. Um, lightning, <laughs> FireWire was, like, 20 years ago. Uh, lightning yep. bolt connectors or something <laughs> like that to, to wire in? We're, it's actually just all gigabit Ethernet. Uh, it's cheap and super available and runs for a long time. And for most of the workflow we have, since we're uh, kind of a 720p workflow, we don't have much of a need to get past 100 megabit. It's more than fast enough for our old hardware to render off of that. It's not necessarily the bottleneck it's just making sure that the server can provide multiple gigabit streams to multiple clients as well as having enough hard drive io input output in order to blast all that data to all of our editors yeah i use my server for backup storage and uh, on gigabit ethernet i get probably 100 to 80 megs you know read write that's enough to do basic editing i suppose if you had like four or five streams that might get tough but yeah that's not too bad yeah. Um, what are you using for a switch and uh, uh, router setup? Are you building something out of <laughs> out of a computer parts, or are yeah, you just no, getting I, a Cisco system, or what? I wish I wish it was super cool and complicated like that, but uh, no, it's mostly just um, uh, using Juniper to uh, firewall and direct our uh, fiber internet connection, and then uh, after that, it's just a basic Cisco switch, uh, just doing some console commands up there to in order to. Uh, get everything routed properly. So I'd like to say, yeah, I'm also building a smooth wall and all this other stuff, but sometimes it's easier to just buy that thing off the shelf and set it to what you need it to do. <laughs> I 100% agree. Sometimes I just don't feel like building that BS. It's just so much work. On that mm-hmm. note, guys, it's time for the news. Time for the news. Uh, first up, and actually Devin brought this to my attention, so I'll give him the credit where credit is due. <laughs> uh, the Adobe CC release that we were s- super excited about, talking about uh, 2015. earlier, 2015, has dropped. So you can go ahead and get that now. Uh, for you, those of you not familiar with the feature updates, one of the really cool things and something that Devin and I are both excited about are the color correction features they're adding to uh, Premiere Pro. So now you can add vignettes and do basic photo style editing, similar to what you see in Lightroom. Room. Only now it's available in Premiere. No idea what this is going to do to previous timelines. So if you're working on an edit, you might want to continue <laughs> to stick with 14, 6, or whatever you're on. But it is cool to mess with. Devin, have you touched this yet? I, I haven't. Uh, and it's one of those that is very important on my list because I obviously need to make sure it's not going to break anything uh, before we start switching people over to it. But I'm super excited for it. One thing I've always uh, appreciated that Adobe does is they allow you to run multiple versions at the same time off of the Adobe Creative Cloud and allow you to maintain multiple installed copies, as well as every time you open with a new version, it doesn't automatically overwrite. It says, hey, this is a whole new version. We're going to make a project file that's not compatible with 2014.2. 
uh, go ahead and give it a new file name because we want to make sure that you still have a backup of the old copy in case something breaks. Because I believe, DJ, you've ran into one of those issues where the newer version just does some crazy stuff with your timeline that you can't fix. Yeah, this is actually a, a fix that Devin helped me out with. I didn't even know this was a thing until I started clicking around and he showed me, actually. I was running 2014 and I had an editor that was working on a Premiere Elements project that he would export and send to me and then I would work on it in Premiere Pro. Well, Elements did not work across platforms to CC, but it did work with six. And so, you know, I pay for a license, but I was actually pirating six because <laughs> I didn't know about this. And as soon as Devin explained it to me, I immediately went and installed that. The only thing I run into is I do have some uh, plugins that I pay for uh, from... I think they're Red, Red Giant? Giant plugins, yeah. And because Red Giant's uh, installation program finds multiple instances and installs them into different plugin folders, right. it kind of does this weird thing where it warns me that like different instances of the plugin is, are running, if, especially if I have like uh, Adobe After Effects CC open and then I have uh, Premiere 6 open. It gives me some weird error messages. Hasn't locked anything up, so it seems to work pretty good. A and quick it's note really about, handy. Uh, Red Giant. Um, and for anyone who was like me and thought that their uh, uh, Bulletproof was a really cool application, uh, check your spam folder if you haven't gotten it yet. They are giving huge discounts because they're discontinuing Bulletproof. What? Uh, so they're, yeah. The, they, they said that it'll still be available to download. You can still use it, but there's too many codecs and cameras to properly maintain. So I got a $50 off uh, coupon code for basically anything on the site, whether it's a suite or it's one program or you're doing an upgrade, you can apply that anywhere. So uh, just something to keep in mind is that uh, that is going away, and, uh, but they are trying to make uh, friends with you by giving you that big coupon code. I think I actually got two. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking in my inbox right now, and I've got a – a Red Giant cloud and support for CC 2015 email, but I did not get the discount code. So maybe really? I'm not good enough friends with anybody <laughs> in particular to enjoy Or maybe that. just search a little harder. They also give you a free copy of Offload if you haven't purchased that either. Mm. Uh, so I only had a copy of Bulletproof along with Pluralize and a few other tools. And so they gave me a code for a free copy of Offload as well as 50% off on their other products. So... Yeah, I actually um, bought my copy of Pluralize separately, and now I pay for one of those extended licenses from Red mm -hmm. Giant for their effects library. Uh, I believe it's like Red Planet or something like this. Something has Planet yeah. in it, or... I think it's Universe. Red Universe. <laughs> there you go. Universe. Universe. <laughs> world. Nation. I don't know. <laughs> always big names with them. They're always <laughs> shooting for the stars. <laughs> Okay, moving on down the line. So check that out. Um, if you got a coupon, maybe there's probably some people that are posting it. If you look around the internet, you might be able to find that. I actually moved my show notes, so now I have to find them again. Moving <laughs> on down the line, uh, Devin and I kind of wanted to dive in a little bit to the Sony camera release. I talked about this last episode with uh, Mitch, but Devin, I wanted to kind of get your input on some of these cameras. And I'm scrolling through the list. Let's go ahead and just start with the RX-10 Mark II. Uh, this is a follow-up to the RX-10, as many of you probably know it'll be shipping in june and it looks like this is basically the same body same 24 to 200 millimeter f2.8 constant focus lens or constant aperture lens and uh it only really has one upgrade and that upgrade <laughs> seems to be uh uhd or 4k recording so 3840 by 2160 at 30 frames per second now i mentioned this to devin before we started the show and it's kind of interesting if you look at 
the BNH specs page, and I'm going to share my screen so everybody can kind of see this for the people listening to the podcast. I apologize. But if you look down at the specs here, you'll notice that on the RX10, the frame rates for 4K are limited to 30 frames per second. While if you look on the RX100, which I have right here, they've got 30 frames per second, 25 and 24 frames respectively. I wonder if that's a typo or if it's an actual uh, problem or design with these two different cameras. But that's just a side note that's kind of been bugging me for the last couple of days. Devin, what still, do you think about It's still these coming two? soon. It very well could just be a typo um, and not a final press release because it does say coming soon. Um, and will be available available for purchase Wednesday, June seventeenth. Uh, the more what I'm really interested in uh, with this camera because um, is the high speed functionality. Uh, I haven't seen any tests of it yet, but 960 frames is a lot, and not many people boast that. And I'm not. Uh, it would be interesting to see how the Kodak holds up to that because I could see it being a really interesting camera. Uh, just for that one purpose. Having a fixed lens is not something that I'm crazy about because I like to have lots of different styles. Um, but I don't know because it, it's almost like uh, it's kind of like a camcorder because it's a fixed lens. But at the same time, it has that smaller form factor that's kind of nice to carry around and do stuff with. Um, I'm just disappointed, though, that um, apparently, according unless it's a typo, uh, according to the notes, it only holds up to 29 minutes of footage at a time. That is uh, correct. Is, no typo. Which is a big downer for me, coming from a, like a GH3, GH4, where you can record as long as you want. It's like a, an actual camcorder replacement, per se. So have I'm you seen adding, any of the slow-mo footage? Yeah, I'm actually adding this to the show notes now, because I was just watching this today. I'm re- really kind of interested in it. Um, I'll make it a little bit bigger. That's very tiny text right now. <laughs> but, um, basically, it looks good. I mean, you know how a lot of times when you look at some of this uh, slow-mo stuff that they claim is beautiful and you end mm-hmm. up uh, with sort of a soft, uh, washed-out image because you know the sensor is trying to capture stuff so fast that it's not really processing properly or doing the same sort of behind-the-scenes mm-hmm. stuff that you normally get. But with this, uh, watch the clips. Uh, now, again, these are from Sony, so they could be doctored. <laughs> you know, They could be like made to look a little bit nicer than they really are. But the stuff I've seen so far... There's um, a beautiful shot of a girl uh, uh, running through a field with bubbles and stuff like that, and that looks really nice in slow-mo. There's a couple of little action things Mm. going on that look really good. And Sony's got five or six clips on YouTube that you can watch at 1080p of the 960 frames per second, as well as a few other frame rates. It does look pretty good. And... The thing I go back to on this, it's a one-inch sensor, so you're not going to get the same depth of field as you would out of a regular DSLR or even a right. Micro Four Thirds camera. But 24 to 200 at f2.8, and all the functionality of a video camera plus a photography tool in a package that's smaller than the Canon T2i, and you don't mm-hmm. have to invest in all the other stuff. So you're getting the body you're getting all the lens you'll ever need or be able to use because it's attached. For most purposes, sure. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the price sets you at about the investment for a decent DSLR and maybe two lenses. Is that, am I doing the math wrong on this? Does that sound about no, no, right to that's, you? And that's, and that's totally right. Plus, you don't have to switch out the lenses. And this lens is, uh, I mean, um, you know, it's always nice to get a little faster with that smaller sensor, but 2.8 is nothing to uh, snark at. It's definitely 
fastest for most applications. I think this could work great as a secondary camera to follow up something else that you have. It, like I said, it's one of those things where I would love to have this camera just for maybe that slow-mo every once in a while of something really cool. Uh, but most of my secondary cameras, I usually set up somewhere and set them to record and leave them. And with a time limit like 30 minutes, that makes it difficult for me to consider this seriously for doing that kind of thing. Though, according to the note, uh, the BNH photo, if you've got some memory sticks from sony you could make use of them here because uh, apparently it supports uh, you know the duo the pro duos and what? The are they still using versions. that crap they're still using memory sticks so man. if you bought memory sticks a long time ago and you're like man i just need a camera because these sticks are so this could be the camera for you <laughs> one other thing to note on uh, the rx10 and the original rx10 in fact is that they are both compatible with uh sony's hot shoe adapter units so if you have one of their xlr audio adapters the uh i think it's the kx10 or kx100 um you can get those and you can use the hot shoe on the rx10 just like you would on something like the sony a7s so you can get full xlr audio adapters built specifically for this camera that don't take up any of the extra ports on the side or what have you and that's pretty handy i've tested out the rx10 the original one with that adapter and the camera itself with this one inch sensor was good down to about 1600 iso uh wide open at f28 so that's pretty comparable to what you got out of the previous generation 7d and still the rebel line of uh what are they on the t6i now yeah, I think so. Yeah, so, you know, uh, that whole thing is pretty nice. Um, and in general, like, for I, I kind of envision this as a news-gathering type of device for, you know, independent journalists or somebody sure, working yeah. for a paper that also needs to generate a little bit of video content. Because imagine this is everything you need in a single body. You get one of these, like, uh, mics or XLR adapters or whatever. And it's probably simple to use. Yeah, they're really, they've got an auto feature, so you don't even have to think about, like, what you're doing. And, I mean, it's but good I, at... You know that having that lens attached means, too, that the camera's going to know exactly how to expose, how to focus, and exactly. I, it's just going to be a very quick and easy experience. Because sometimes some lenses uh, will chug a bit on certain kinds of cameras, depending on their firmware and everything else. This is all wrapped up. It's basically like a camcorder that you can still uh, not just shoot stills, but you could also be inconspicuous when you record video, because sometimes that's a part of journalism. Uh, so that, that's something I didn't even think about, that journalism is uh, probably really good for a camera like this. Yeah, and I think, uh, too, doesn't this have a maximum shutter speed of 16,000 or something yeah, like that? The electronic shutter speed is some kind of crazy number. It's up there. I know it's 132,000. Uh, so, you know, you don't even More really than you need... need yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even in direct sunlight, you could open this wide up and probably still get exposure, you know, photos that work yeah, out just fine. And it's so. still, and it's that, uh, that shoe for XLR or for doing other flashes and stuff like that. And uh, their, you know, steady shot image stabilization uh, from the Sonys, I've always really liked. Um, I always thought that their image stabilization was never too much or too little. I always thought that it was a pretty good balance. So if they've maintained the same mentality here, I think that it's an all around. Um, great camera that you don't have to learn necessarily in order to use. One other thing I want to point out too, uh, this is a one inch sensor. So I was talking about depth of field earlier, but it has a 200 millimeter range. 
And with that kind of zoom at f2.8, uh, even on a one-inch <laughs> sensor, you know, you can back away from your subject, zoom in to 200 millimeters, and basically knock out the background using that method as opposed to trying oh, yeah. to do it in the 50 range or whatever. So if you have the room to walk around or whatever, you can still get nice shallow depth of field shots out of even a one-inch sensor like that, especially with a 200 millimeter focal length. I'm interested in this camera. I'm probably not going to pull the trigger, but I would like to maybe get one in for review. Hint, hint to anybody who's listening. <laughs> um, moving on down the line to the next one, and uh, this is basically the baby brother to this, the RX-10. If you're not familiar with Sony's line, they have the 10 and the 100. The 10's been out for quite a while now, and the RX... Oh, man, I'm messing this up. I, the RX-100 and the RX-10. The RX-100 <laughs> is the baby brother. The RX-10 is the Siver, the big, whatever, that's the monster. Mm -hmm. um, so the Sony uh, RX100 basically has the same innards as this. It's uh, working with the same 20.2 megapixel sensor. Uh, it's got 16 frame per second burst mode. It's got uh, the 4K upgrade. I mentioned before that it does have multiple frame rates listed for 4K shooting, whereas the RX10 does not, which is interesting. Um, but otherwise, you're basically dealing with a 24 to 70 millimeter focal range, and I believe that's F. F1.8 to F2.8. So you get a little bit more um, wide open on the mm -hmm. wide side, but uh, otherwise fairly similar with like a reduced zoom range and a reduced size overall. Otherwise still works with the hot shoe accessories. Um, looks like it has many of the same inputs. Uh, I think you are missing the headphone output on this. I could be wrong on that. So you might want to double check me out there before you uh, take that as uh, set in stone. But Devin, what do you think about the little baby version? Uh, I to this one, this one almost seems to make more sense to me, and I know that that sounds weird, but uh, with um, you know built-in ND filters and 10 FPS continuous shooting, uh, to me this feels like uh, what could be a really great walk-around camera. I, I obviously would want to really play with it for a while to figure out if it's right for me, but I've always wanted a walk-around camera that can also do some really good video um at least something that's just clean and it's not grainy and it's something i could use somewhere else not necessarily for you know a client or anything like that but just i don't know the more gear i get and the more gear i take to clients the more that when i'm on vacation or something like that i don't want to drag all that along so it'd be nice to have a small camera uh, that i can still kind of feel a little creative with and have some fun uh for once with photography and video um and have one that at least shoots really clean video that later on I don't have to look back and go uh, well that's not as good as my such and such camera you know so I, I'd appreciate it for something like that um, especially considering just the size this thing is tiny yeah now um, looking at both of these and then thinking about its nearest competitor the Panasonic FC 1000 that's been able to shoot 4k in both uh, UHD and full I believe it's full frame uh, full four yeah, I don't know. Um, check the specs. Yeah, full 4K <laughs> as well as uh, UHD. But uh, that camera is currently sitting at about $709 on Amazon. I'm looking right now. And that has all the features that both of these guys are offering at a lower price than both of them. And it's also good, I mean, basically the same, you know, 20.1 megapixel sensor, uh, and it's got mm -hmm. a super zoom, so this one goes up to 400 millimeters, I think it's f2.8 to f4, so it's not constant aperture across the zoom range, but still, what do you think? Would you go with the Panasonic uh, FC1000, or one of these two new cameras, if I gave you $1,000 to spend? <laughs> 
I don't, you know what? That's a hard one because uh, I do like the Panasonics and their five axis assist image stabilization in this camera has been good. I think I'd have to go with it just because of that flip out monitor. I don't know why Sony doesn't do a flip out monitor or does a monitor that flips down because uh, that's usually when I need a flip out monitor. Um, it, it sounds silly, but almost for that sake alone, just for a flip out monitor. Uh, but still, it's a slightly bigger camera. I like one that can sit in my pocket. So, out of all the stuff I have right now, I feel like uh, I'd go with the slimmer option because that's probably the camera I'd have on me, therefore being the best camera for the job, whatever camera you have on you. Yeah, I'm going to correct myself. It was UHD only, so 3840 by 2160 is your limit, and it's limited to 30 frames per second for the FC1000, so that is a little bit different. I kind of like the flip-out screen as well. My main complaint with the Sony A7S is this crap right here. You know what? <laughs> like, come on. Give me a right real flip-out range. He's flipping his camera thing up by five degrees yeah. and down by five degrees. I mean, don't That's get me wrong. There are times when this is handy where I can, you know, shoot looking down like this and uh, that's fine, but otherwise, this F, uh, this Sony A7S is obnoxious in the fact that I can't flip the monitor out to the side. There's always times where I want to be able to do that, and I'm so used to shooting with the yeah. uh, you know the GH4 that I've kind of grown accustomed to it. Even well, okay, so with my 5D Mark III and my 6D and so on, I use a monitor ex like exclusively, so there's always a uh, monitor attached to it, but that adds an extra bit of bulk. With the A7S, I was hoping to get away from that, but it doesn't really happen, so I end up having to carry an extra monitor as well. And that has that tiny, tiny flimsy port where you get a full-size, oh, yeah. or, well, or at least a mini port instead of the, like, micro tiny port that you get on yeah, the A7S. micro HDMI. Yeah, and so that's even flakier than mini <laughs> HDMI, and mini's <laughs> flaky enough as is, so it's just... Yep. Uh, it's just another frustrating you know, thing to throw in there. The same, the this the, when I appreciate the flip out monitors, it's funny because it's always kind of like this one specific situation. But it's in a situation where, for some reason, I've got my camera back up against a wall, either because I'm trying to zoom in as far as I can to throw the background out or something like that, or for style reasons, and my tripod is up against a wall, and the flip out monitor lets me view my camera from the side. Yeah, which none of those Sony flip up and flip down things, or and Canon's made a few too, I think, for their smaller cameras. None of those show me that from the side, and that's when I really need a flip out monitor um, because you know, it's just bringing a whole monitor just for like, oh, I'm setting up the camera here, and I'd like to compose the shot before I hit record and leave it for an hour. It seems like a waste to bring a whole monitor just to frame up your camera. Yeah, the big kick in the pants for me is actually not having to crawl on the ground. Like, th there's a lot of times where I need to get <laughs> the perspective of feet or someone hitting the ground, especially when you're shooting narrative stuff. Um, there's always mm -hmm. that time where, like, some kind of action movement happens and you want to, like, capture the ground level. And so if you're, like, I was shooting in a barn a couple of months ago, and the barn was formally used for... Uh, uh, animal you know they were raising pigs or something like mm -hmm. that in there and it had dried out but that was all petrified pig crap <laughs> and i needed to get this shot on the ground like coming up like this because it was supposed to be from the perspective of the guy that had just been hit and knocked to the ground and so and i had my 5d mark three with me and i actually had to go lay in that stuff on the <laughs> ground to shoot and then you know the next week i had to shoot in a in the same location for um, a few more pickup shots and i had the gh4 with me no problem set it on the ground let it dance around in the pig crap and mm -hmm. i don't have to and i was able to get the shot without having to climb around and that stuff is gross it's 
powdery and it covers your entire shirt and your back and everything else. And so by the as soon as you stand up, you just have it all over you. You breathe it into your nose. You stink. That's it's your, gross. That's your biography. Getting the shot with DJ. Yeah, no <laughs> joke. So the flip out screen is it's kind of become my new essential go to thing. I want all new cameras to have it. I don't care if it's not a professional feature. I don't care that it's uh, gonna make the camera a little bit more weak and you know maybe put it in danger of water damage at some point. Just give it to me, or, you know, or give me that option you can make a specialty camera just for shooting stars at night why can you not offer me a version that has a flip out screen canon come on you already make one you make the t6i and all those they all have a flip out screen you've designed one you've designed one guys (laughs) Uh, next up on the list here is the sony a7r mark ii this is the entrance for sony into the mega megapixel sensor we're dealing with a 42 megapixel sensor uh, r if you're not familiar with sony's labeling scheme is for resolution the a7s s is for sensitivity and i don't know what the a7 is but that's just plain jane or <laughs> you know full frame or whatever but it's just taking after canon <laughs> yeah so the a7r is just a very high megapixel sensor on a regular sony a7 style body uh, the upgrade here are internal 4K recording and the full motion 5-axis system image stabilization for the sensor. Both of those are very attractive, but the price is a little less than attractive. We're looking at, what, $3,200? And they're promising better autofocus, but... I've never been impressed with my A7S's autofocus, especially for photography. I can't imagine Sony's going to substantially change with this one. Uh, They do have some demos up, so take a look at those. Devin, what do you think about the A7R? Uh, Honestly, I think it uh, pales in comparison to the S. I know that it does have that internal 4K, which I guess for some people may be important. But part of the reason why people love the A7S is because of its uh, low-light sensitivity. And so when you're trading that for resolution... Uh, which, you know, even though that means, I guess, an increase in video resolution as well as photography resolution, uh, resolution is just not that important, especially if uh, while a lot of the photos have looked clean so far that I've seen, uh, I can just imagine, though, that they're not going to be as clean as an A7S because you're dealing with the same size sensor, but smaller pixels so that there's more variance in the light that's gathered and everything else. So it's it's one of those where there's nothing really grabbing me towards this. Cause if you want the internal 4k recording, uh, you know, a GH four would almost be better for it. I mean, unless you really need a full size sensor, I guess, and internal 4k and, uh, Sony's mount, uh, the E mount, I, I guess I don't know exactly why you would need all of this. Um, I mean, the backlight sensor thing is cool. Uh, cause I mean, I have seen that work. I, but you're right. I don't think the autofocus <laughs> system is going to be that revolutionary. Uh, yeah, and I, the E-mount I'll system support. right now, man, the lens selection, it's getting better. But, like, a lot of people are like, oh, just buy the 55 F1.8. I'm like, F1.8, really? Really? <laughs> F1.8? Come on, guys. You know, this is like a, a $1,000 lens or an $800 lens, and it, it's an F1.8? Yeah. I, I don't know. It's That part's frustrating. The other thing, uh, and I want to take a couple of notes here. First of all, um, the backlit sensor is available for all of these. Uh, for those of you not familiar with the technology, it's basically just moving the interface surface for the photodiodes to the back of the unit as opposed to the front of the unit so that you have less light loss as light travels through the sensor. But <laughs> the other thing I wanted to note, and this is kind of an interesting side note here, is I just recently had to do a shoot with the Sony a7S on an Odyssey, which captures 4K, and at 4K, the a7S is not as stellar in low light capabilities as it is 
at 1080p. So if you're not familiar with that, um, this is awesome just shooting a- a HD at, in really low light. You know, in candlelight. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can take this thing down to where, oh, I lit this with two cell phone screens that were blank. You know, that's that's how good it is. But when you take that up to 4K and you're capturing in the same environment, uh, it gets pretty noisy because part of the reason the noise seems to disappear, and at least this is from the limited test I had to rent the Odyssey, so I didn't have it with me uh, the whole time and get it to really experiment. But uh, it seemed as though the reduction from... Uh, 4K to HD with the sensor on here is actually kind of masking and hiding the noise pattern that you get in 4K. Now, I don't know if anybody else has experienced this. Maybe there's a lot more talk about this on the net that I haven't looked around to find out about because I haven't really been capturing 4K with this guy. But that's something to think about. And I'm going to keep an eye out for it because I have a couple more shoots coming up with the A7S and I'll be capturing in 4K. So... That is weird, and it is a little bit is, depressing. Yeah. Uh, the other thing yeah. I want to complain about before... Uh, sorry, Devin, to cut you off there, is this right here. This is stupid. <laughs> you are stupid, Sony. He's Don't holding give me up these a tiny, tiny little batteries. battery, the tiniest battery in the world right now. Yeah, so these little 7.4-volt, 1,950-milliamp-hour, uh, 14.4-watt batteries that Sony provides are junk. They last, like, 40 minutes. I mean, these are just about the size of a GoPro. Especially when you compare it to the GH4 batteries, which through some sort of magic seem to last for half a day of shooting. Yeah, I get good, good long results out of my... Even my generic um, GH4 batteries, they, they last a long time. These Sony A7S batteries, and Sony has been implementing this battery type in a lot of their cameras. It's just not that good. Um, you can use the battery grip. There are a few people that have been hacking together adapter plates where they basically take a dummy battery and they wire it up to a Canon um, battery grip and then they hook that in to power the camera and you can do stuff like that. It's just, it's really janky. And even with the battery grip on here, like right now you can, for those of you watching the video version and not listening to the audio version, uh, there is basically a frame around my A7S and this frame is just what I want, but the battery grip does not like work into that. Uh, This is a small rig frame. Um, actually, a uh, quick plug to Small Rig. I was working with DC, a very, very good friend of mine and fan of the site, who has been working with Small Rig to design upgrades to this based on some of the complaints him and I had about this. So I will be seeing an upgraded version of the A7S uh, adapter uh, rig system for this soon from small rig so uh, look forward to something on that but uh yeah he's done a really good job of um there was some problems with their friction arm uh, and i think i showed you that devin in a podcast yeah. uh, many many months ago but uh, months ago. i've been using that and it's kind of it's got a torsion ring in it and the ring only covers a part of the section as it collapses and so that ring slips after a while especially if it falls into the wrong place and uh, dc worked with um with those guys to come up with a better solution and if uh, you want to see dc society i believe it's clickcraft.net so be sure to check that out he's done a great job working with small rig so i just want to give him a quick plug there uh sorry devin <laughs> i didn't mean to derail you on the batteries what were oh. you going to say about the crummy <laughs> batteries that sony a7s is offering up I know it's just it's, it's something about um uh I I've heard lots of people complain and I've seen lots of uh hacked together solutions and it I know it's a smaller camera and I know that it's running a big sensor I'm just kind of surprised that in their design 
Uh, they didn't build out a slightly bigger handle. That's one thing that uh, I always kind of found to be really good about the GH3 and then by proxy the GH4 was that it it created a bigger grip for a bigger battery. And the, I was fine with the bigger grip because it felt great, even for such a small camera. Yeah. The T2i, my hand always felt a little cramped on it. And of course, if you go to your full size, like your you know 90Ds, whatever, your 5Ds and 7Ds, those always feel great because they're full size. And you know photographers love them because they feel great. Um, but these smaller cameras that we like using, this mirrorless stuff with Sony and everything else, I love the GH4 and the GH3 because I feel like it fits me perfectly, especially if you get that bottom grip too. My pinky fits right in there in a very special way. I really like it. Uh, but when I was handling uh, the Sony A7S, I was like, oh, it feels like a T2i again. It's kind of cramped. And I'm like, why not make it bigger, get a bigger battery in there uh, so it's a bit more usable without having to swap out batteries all day. Yeah, and just a demo, I've actually got the GH4 right here. You can see... Like, I have rather large mitts. Yeah, my hands are huge. <laughs> and so holding on to this, like, I still even have room for my pinky to catch on here without feeling like I'm going to fall off of the camera. But then we switch over to the A7S, and this is strictly visual. So, guys, watch the <laughs> video. Um, you know, you hold it right here, and it's like, basically, you're like this. So you already have, if you you can't see, my pinky is falling off right here. Uh, these three fingers just barely fit on there. And then I'm kind of like in this awkward thing where I'm sort of holding one finger up and then cupping right, it with my trigger pinky. and so yeah. what i end up having to do and that's why this rig is essential to me is i actually hold the uh handle here i've got a slide rail here and this is a nato rail from small rig as well you clamp onto that with a handle and then you can hold it like this and have your hand kind of halfway on this side so you have two-handed support right but otherwise like the grip on this eh, it doesn't feel great at all and uh, the focus is so slow even in good light that I I almost would rather just take my GH4 out or my 5D Mark III. <laughs> and I love the low light capability, but it really is so far, it's only really suited me for uh, video. It hasn't really done me much good in regular photography. Although I have not invested in all of the E-mount lenses available yet, and I don't know if I'm going to just because I'm not really that committed to the whole Sony proposition. Um, speaking right. of lenses, though, and I'm going to throw this quickly <laughs> out there, I've got, remember that uh, Kippen adapter I was talking about a couple podcasts back? Yes. That yes. is coming that in. Focus one? It yes. Gave, it gave focus for Canon lenses? Yes. I pre-ordered that. That is coming in, uh, I believe, the end of this week. So there should be some more info on DSLRfilmnoob.com about that. But uh, That's exciting. Yeah, the stuff that showed up so far on YouTube with the autofocus for that looks really good. Uh, you can still go pre-order that on eBay, but um, I think the shipping delay is like two or three weeks out now because there's a lot of people that are pre-ordering, and so they're trying to take care of that. Um, mine shipped early, but I ordered it as soon as I saw it. So I took the risk. I think it's a $300 399 uh, for the adapter. But if you get full AF out of it like you would with a Canon camera, that's pretty sweet for the adapters. I know I'm kind of derailing the whole no, no, talk that's, that's here. but all right. Uh, I but wanted, anyway, I wanted to ask you real quick, okay. uh, if you share my opinion that uh, something like the GH4 seems to be totally designed around uh, the hand grip and the ergonomics of the whole camera and the experience where I feel like the Sony's most Sony's in general, but you know, like an a seven S uh, seems to just be for aesthetics. Like it's a beautiful looking camera, but none of the buttons and switches really feel like locked in, like they were thought out necessarily as much as the GH four. And I was just wondering if you had that same feeling that I did about the way that they've laid out their camera. 
so there are a few complaints I have right away about the Sony A7S. <laughs> um, the uh, default settings for a lot of the control wheels and everything else are just, they're asinine. I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> like, they don't work the way you think they should. And I know this is me coming from, like, multiple other camera brands, so I kind of expect my click wheel in the front to do one thing and my click wheel in the back to do the other thing. Mm-hmm. But depending on what mode you're in, they kind of change and do whatever. So, like, sometimes it'll adjust the thing you want it to. Sometimes it won't. Sometimes it causes problems. Sometimes it sort of works. <laughs> There's a bunch of assignable buttons, and a bunch of people have actually posted uh, some good profiles that you can, I think, download and put onto your memory card and then l- upload into the camera. And they do make it a little bit more convenient, but in general, like the button layout and the whole interface is not that good. I'm also mm-hmm. uh, kind of annoyed by this camera um, uh, memory card compartment because mm-hmm. when I'm holding it like this, so now my hand is too big for this, I kind of push in. And when I'm pushing in, I sometimes like pop this out and open it up. Wow. And that's, uh, you know, that's that's a bad design. Uh, the other thing, you're right, it does look beautiful. The industrial design of this is nice and slim, but it's almost like... They focused in on making it this like perfect square across the whole thing, and mm-hmm. they basically neglected to do any other sort of like ergonomic style and design mm-hmm. to keep it thin. And I know everything's kind of angling towards thin these days with laptops and everything else, and that sort of feels like what they were going for. Because, you know, you look at this body right here, and I've got the um, adapter to go to A-mount on this, so it's a little bit bigger. But basically... You have this entire hand grip here that's too small, for my opinion. Uh, You could come out, like, this much further on this guy, uh, make it big and easy to hold on to, like the GH4, and now you would have a big battery compartment where you could actually fit a battery that will last (laughs) you more than an hour in this thing, or maybe, I don't know, use two of your tiny batteries, whatever you want to do. The other Mm -hmm. thing that's kind of dumb about this is uh, when I got it, uh, I don't think it... It came with a battery charger, but the battery charger was like a USB battery charger. So you had to plug a USB. Yeah, there was some, I can't remember. It's been a while. That's low amperage and low voltage. That seems strange that that would be a battery charger. Well, you you can use the one amp or the two amp USB supplies and get a little bit faster charging out of that. I might be uh, messing this up a little bit. It's been a while since I unboxed this camera, but um, you can charge it. But the charging port on this guy is a regular... Uh, USB micro adapter like you get on Android cell phones and so on. So oh, that's not <laughs> yeah. So it's not that conducive. Plugged in there while I'm using the camera. Yeah, and I'm looking right here just to make sure I'm not full of whatever. And yeah, there it is right there. It's a super. I don't know if you can even see that. A super tiny. Yep, little uh, micro USB port. So it that's kind of I don't know. Well, it that, makes that me seems irritated. like such a consumer feature. For a camera that, with price and power, seems to be targeted towards a prosumer to professional market. Well, they're, Sony's doing this thing right now because you got the FS700 and, and so on. Right. And you don't want this camera to impede on their, their higher-end cameras. Right. And if they give this too much good stuff, then it's like, why even buy those other cameras? Uh, speaking of which, I almost forgot, didn't the A or the FS700 get a price drop to like $5,000? Yeah, $5,000. Yeah, I was eyeing it. <laughs> I know, I saw that too, and I was like, hmm, maybe, I don't know. (laughs) 
probably not. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, those are my complaints about the A7S, the A7R Mark II. Um, I am kind of excited about the five-axis image stabilization. I would like to see an A7S come out with that, as well as if this new AF system is better. That would be great to have that move into the uh, A7S Mark II. But I don't know if we'll be seeing that anytime in the near term. Once they add 4K internal recording to the A7S Mark II, uh, it mm -hmm. will cannibalize their higher-end market. So of they course. may be reluctant to do that like in the Canon, near term. It's a Canon C-Series all over again. Yep, pretty much. Uh, you know, the story mix, rinse, and repeat is basically <laughs> what's going on here. Uh, moving on down the line to uh, some other more interesting things, and I actually talked about this last podcast as well. We're basically cloning the podcast only with Devin <laughs> and going on a lot more tangents. But uh, here is Vlog spotted in the wild for the GH4. Uh, this came from the guys over at the camera store TV uh, YouTube channel. Uh, Jordan over there posted this on Twitter. It's a... Uh, little picture basically a vlog working on the gh4 uh, i believe they're using a beta or uh, pre-release version of the firmware i have not messed with it yet but devin does this make your mouth water when you this see does excite me. this excites me a lot also too it sounds strange but i'm almost more excited by the fact that when vlog is selected uh it looks at, i mean this is all beta we're all speculating here but it looks like uh contrast and uh a few other settings are grayed out that you're not allowed to change them uh, because that for would so make long, perfect sense. I've seen so many people, uh, you know, go to like with the Panasonic series, go to the natural and then start dialing everything to negative five. Uh, and then they complain about how crappy it all looks. And it's just, <laughs> it's like, yeah, there's, there's a reason why you can pick, you know, between uh, plus five and negative five and why there's a gradient there because of different shooting situations and different environments. Uh, everyone just seems to want to be out to find the perfect setting. Uh, and they end up kind of destroying settings, trying to think that uh, they're going to find the perfect one. Because you, I feel like for Panasonic, there's a lot of the time where, you can push it down, but then if you push it down too far, it's just artificially doing what you want it to as opposed to getting you a, a truer read off of the sensor kind of a situation. <laughs> so, uh, But a vlog, I think, would make everyone happy because it blocks all that out and you just you set it to vlog and then everyone goes, yes, I finally have the perfect settings for my Panasonic. <laughs> now, I got a question for you, though. I shoot a lot, and I've mentioned this before. I'm pretty lazy, so a lot of times <laughs> I don't ever try to shoot flat unless it's required as part of some contractual obligation or unless I'm shooting raw on some other camera mm -hmm. format. So do you shoot in flat on your cameras, or do you set them up just how you want them to, like a flavor that looks pretty good, and leave it at that and do a little bit of touch-up in post? Or do you go full flat and then do all of your post correction and color correction and everything else in every shoot? Or in any shoots, for that matter? <laughs> um, for the most part, I find that um, uh, it really depends on the situation. If I'm doing something where I don't have a lot of control over the environment, I really just kind of go with what the camera wants to do. I Most of my stuff will be zeroed out. Um, I may pull back saturation a little bit. Uh, to try to not, because uh, they, they are, to me, they are, they do seem a little bit saturated. I've got no problem throwing a little bit of color here and there into it. Uh, it's, if I have more control, like I'm doing tests, uh, then I'll go ahead and dial things back and try to find an ideal thing. But most of the time, it's like, oh, you want to flatten the image? You're going to introduce a bunch of noise. So there's not much point in doing that if I'm just going to go into post and crush the blacks anyways. 
I'm distracting Devin here. You are, you are distracting this. me with a very pretty is, lens. Uh, oh, man. Yeah, this okay. So just a little quick. We're going to dive into some show and tell really quick. Uh, the the vlog, it's cool. I'm not into shooting flat, honestly. Um, I do sometimes, but only because I'm required to. ain't got time for to. that. Yeah, it's just so much work. <laughs> like, And even with the raw stuff, and I complain about this all the time, too. You guys have heard this before. And raw shooting, that's fine, but you need a good way to manage stuff. And currently, like the non-red platforms don't have an awesome easy to use intuitive way to handle that stuff so it's not really attractive to me especially like processing a bunch of dng files and trying to get it all in post-production everything else that's a lot of freaking time and i don't have it but this right here i do have and this is <laughs> the olympus uh 42 150 millimeter f28 with the 1.4x teleconverter on it Picked this up on eBay. Wow. I don't know if I talked about this on the show before or not. Um, I've had it for a little while. Got this guy for a freaking steal. I think it was um, $890 for the whole thing. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's like for it's a little beat up. Yeah, for the, the whole thing, teleconverter and all. The only thing that I'm kind of irritated by, and I haven't been able to find a freaking uh, adapter for or a plate for it, but the teleconverter has the little knuckle on it. Oh, the guy yeah. didn't sell me the adapter to cover that up, you know, the the cover mm-hmm. plate for it, the lens cap or whatever you want to call it, or lens hood. Sure. I, I mean, I don't know what the so, term is. So it's hard to cap it. I get it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I have this, and when I just want to use this, like, I don't really have that option because I don't have any way to cover this up in the field. So I end up, mm-hmm. like, leaving this turned upside down on my desk while I'm running around with this and then, like, <laughs> hooking them back together again. And it is nice, man. The size of this thing, uh, compare this to my 70 to 200, and I'm getting, oh, yeah. I'm getting so much reach out of this guy. I think it works out to like 320 or 340, something like that. It is very impressive. I can really get out there, and it is super light, super tiny. And, you know, looking at this on the GH body, GH4 body, I mean, yeah. it's not that big. This is like no. in the Tamron. Well, let me see. Actually, I have the Tamron. 24 you to do? 70. I was just shooting. Yeah, so comparative, comparatively, I mean, here's the Tamron 24 to 70 IS or VA, VC, and these two together side by side. I mean, this is skinnier. This is significantly lighter, and it's only got about, what, two inches on it? Not bad at all. Totally. Not that even. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I feel man. like you're shrinking everything. Like your whole goal is to have a camera in one pocket and two lenses in your back pockets. And then that's all you go out the door with to shoot. Okay. So I actually had a shoot this weekend that I had to go work on. And this is what I took right here. This is, this is <laughs> a, a small tele- bag like, for those yeah. listening. Uh, this is basically like a messenger bag. It's a Tele uh, 6110 or. Uh, yeah, or Rally. I think it's a Rally, actually. And this is a, a, a Tamarack bag. I love Tamarack bags, by the way. It's fairly attractive looking, but check this out. So I've got enough lenses to do a regular shoot. So I've got, uh, this is the, um, let me see, the Olympus 75mm f1.8. I've got the wide angle here. This is the uh, 7-14 to millimeter from Panasonic f4. I've got nice. this mega zoom right here in there i've got audio <laughs> kit in the front of this here and i can also fit the uh 12 to 40 millimeter f28 olympus lens on the gh4 body and some backup kit in here 
Plus, I still have room to throw in something like the 17mm uh, F1.8 or the 45mm F1.8 if I want to, and it doesn't fill up the entire bag. So I still have room wow. for like a wireless mic kit. I can throw <laughs> a lav kit in here, and then I pack a travel tripod. Bam. You take this, a travel tripod, you head over to the chute, you set up for a talking head, put a mic on him, bam, you're done. That's it. Wow. It's really freaking nice. And I mean, uh, I can't say enough good things about this uh, Olympus uh, 75mm F1.8. This is like, I don't know. Um, I use the uh, 135 F2 quite a bit on my 5D Mark III, and this is basically like an alternative to that. Uh, it's about 150mm equivalent on a GH4 body, a little bit more when you're shooting in 4K because there's that little bit of crop factor. And at F1.8, as long as you have the distance in the room, you can just knock out the background, get beautiful bokeh. This lens is <laughs> really nice. It does a great job. I don't That's know what price. secret sauce is inside of it, but it even seems to make the color rendition that comes out of the GH4 natively look a little bit better to my eye. Uh, maybe I'm <laughs> just imagining it because I spent money on this lens. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> this is freaking good. I love this guy. And so this whole kit... This whole kit right here is it's mm-hmm. tiny. It's so small. It is. And, and you look behind me here, and I can move over so you can see it. Look at these giant camera bags back here. These are all mm-hmm. full-size Tamarack bags that are completely packed full of Canon gear, uh, Sony gear, everything else. And I have to haul those monster truckers around to it shoots, you know, and it's it's a lot of freaking work. It's a lot of lenses. It's a lot of stuff. This bag, now... <laughs> The scary part is, if it's not on your shoulder, you have a criminal walk by, and they could totally take <laughs> you know six thousand dollars worth of gear, or five thousand dollars worth of gear, in like a single duffel bag and run off, and you wouldn't be able to catch them. So that part's a little bit daunting. But man, man, do I love tiny! It's impressive. It's really impressive. <laughs> Now, that said, I haven't gotten rid of my Canon gear yet, so I still have tons of Canon stuff, and I shoot on Canon gear all the time. Uh, The GH4, unlike uh, some of the other YouTube guys out there that have switched completely to GH4 shooting only, I have not. I still bounce back and forth between my A7S, my GH4, and my 5D and Canon series cameras. So I'm not a complete convert, but uh, I am pretty happy with it. Now, speaking of other things that I've got in the <laughs> shop and are happy with, well, actually, I haven't got a chance to really fly this yet, but let me see if I can reach this. Where did I set you? Big giant thing. Right here. Okay. Again, this is there more of a, a video podcast than an audio yeah, podcast. This week. Sorry, guys, for all the, like, audio look at this. Audio listeners are like, damn you, DJ. All right, so what I'm holding up here is the Cam TV Mini Gimbal. Um, I actually got this in right before I moved, but unfortunately, it's been packed in a box for <laughs> uh, about a month and a half, two months. So I have not had this to play around with. I just got the battery charged yesterday and started flying the GH4 with the 7 to 14 on it, and I'm pretty impressed, man. This thing is really stable. Uh, I'm opening it up to, uh, you guys can see on the video podcast anyway, that the case comes with the stand, and I'm going to move this over here. Uh, it comes with the stand and the battery charger on the top part. You can see that. And then where this pad is here, I can show all this off without uh, dropping it all over the floor. You have this nice cutout for the entire unit, and you slide the batteries into the top of the handle right here. And I'll have more on this soon. Um, I just started getting to play around with it, so it's still fairly fresh here. But, man, the case is really nice. It's all molded and nice and solid, and it zips up into a really convenient package. Plus, having the frame and stand for it is really handy. Um, They 
don't want you to mess around with the firmware on this. So if you're one really? of those guys that's uh, trying to uh, change your three-axis uh, gimbal to do some other stuff, uh, it's not really designed for that. They have a camera weight, and if you stay within that range, it's good. If you go outside of that range, uh, you get what you get. Um, <laughs> I talking to the, talking to the guys at Cam TV. Apparently, you kind of are at the end of its limit if you're going with something like the Sony A7S and a uh, uh, wide-angle lens. The GH4 with the 7-14 is in the light range where it doesn't weigh this thing down at all and it operates very smoothly. Um, nice. There should be some test footage coming up probably this weekend. I'm going to take this out because I, I have a long weekend. I scheduled some time off from production so I can just go do stuff and I, I need a break. <laughs> I've been packing and unpacking. But yeah, I'm going to take this oh, out, man. probably take it over to the ocean and run around with it for a little bit and kind of get some test footage up. And then there should be a full review coming. I'm pretty excited about this guy. It is fairly sexy and man, look at this case, right? But, <laughs> it, I is, mean, it is nice to get all of that. Yeah, and the price on this guy, uh, I think we're looking at about $1,150 to $1,200. Uh, that comes with the stand, that comes with the mini gimbal, and the whole shebang. Um, they do have some upgrades coming out for it, from what I understand, and I'll try and get my hands on those when I get a chance. But uh, right now, I'm just focusing in on playing around with and reviewing this guy. Uh, compared to what the what's the Ronin running, like $3,000? Four thousand dollars. I think so. Yeah, and they've they've got a second one. I think on the way. They showed at NAB or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And those are great. Don't get me wrong. I don't have any complaints about what DJI is do or DJI is doing. It's just that they're kind of up upper end price bracket there, and they're, well, they're still to not fly Movi. Yeah, they're <laughs> no upper end price. They're more mid price because yeah, they, you know still... Movi's kind of like disappeared from the scene. Like, have you heard much yeah, from Movi lately? Like, no, nah, they. They didn't have a presence, as far as I heard, over at NAB, um, and no one was really talking about them. The last I heard was, I think, last year they were talking about a few price drops. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, they're still selling systems. Uh, it just seems like they aren't really marketing or pushing it uh, like they were when they were first released. So, Well, I think the um, other thing you get with Movi that you don't get with some of these lower price units is you kind of get uh, a turnkey sort of package that's just ready to go that's designed to hold really big cameras. So if you're shooting on the new Airy Mini, for example, or you're working with um, any of the red smaller cameras, you have enough uh, load capacity to handle those. The DJI uh, Ronin, I think, is fairly decent as well for uh, high weight capacity. That's good for like a, a 5D yeah. Mark III or even a FS700. So you can get away with that. This They've one... Got They've oh, got go different. They've got a 15, a 10, and a 5, um, depending I'm on how waiting. much weight okay. you're trying to carry. Uh, but it, part of it is, too, is that, um, you know, they've got that secondary controller that's really slick uh, yeah, that's custom-made that nice. for that, as well as uh, it hooks up with iPads and stuff like that so that you can configure it out in the field, which is something I've seen, I think, like, uh, Kame is getting into with their Bluetooth uh, modules or whatever. I think I've seen them throw into a few of their stabilizers or a few of their build your own kind of stabilizers. I've seen people throw some Bluetooth in there. Yeah, so the I know Cam they're TV moving I towards that. Down here does not have wireless features in the unit that I have. I haven't checked on the upgrades yet, but it does have like a full control wheel and all that. So you can mm -hmm. kind of do that follow flow sort of thing. Um, it's pretty smooth and it's great for the GH4 level cameras. I know a lot of people have been testing out those single handle units. 
And mm-hmm. yeah. they've kind of been getting mixed results from what I understand. There's not quite enough space in something like that or battery power to uh, move a big camera like an A7S or a GH4. Yeah. But there's enough to move like a GoPro. So if you want to stabilize your GoPro, that's cool. But if you want to go a little bit bigger than that, you're going to need to, to step it up a notch. And this guy, the price is pretty decent compared to what we were seeing years past. And the technology oh, yeah. has gotten super cheap. Um for those of you that are interested in building your own, uh, there are tons of plans out there. You can go on eBay right now, and uh, you can find partially done kits that basically have all the CNC'd frame in, like... Uh, um, you can you can find full kits where, um, I mean, you obviously still need to wire it, and you still need to wrench it all together. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but Kame will actually, for uh, some of their models, will give you an entire kit for a few hundred less. Uh, if you don't want to pay for assembly and you're handy and you think you can do it yourself. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, the ones on eBay, you can build the entire kit for about 550 to $400. Uh, that's including motors and, and uh, control board, three-axis control board and everything. But they're, instead of being a tube-style system, uh, they basically use carbon fiber plates and CNC everything out of that. So you kind of end up with this weird kind of square boxy system. And it's a lot of mm-hmm. like, oh, well, you didn't get enough wires to hook this up. So you're going to have to like solder <laughs> some wires through this thing. And like hopefully you put them in yep. a way that they don't rip out again. You know, so you do have to be handy. But there are tons of builds out there right now on that sort of thing. Uh, for those of you that aren't as handy getting something like uh, Devin mentioned, I didn't know Cam TV was actually offering a... Uh, a version they were that a was a long time ago. Um, I'm looking through some eBay results right now, and I'm finding a lot of parts. Uh, but maybe they've discontinued uh, setting out kits. They do have kits for the quadcopter setup uh, that are just completely bare. That look very intimidating if you're not familiar with soldering and uh, wrenching stuff together. Um, but I'm sure there's probably a few other ones that uh, are also doing full kits. But the plans are on there too. Um, and where to get the parts and everything else. So th- that is something to consider because I do remember that there was a lot, there, there was significant discounts, at least a couple hundred dollars if you're looking at just the bare parts and the plans to put it together as opposed for assembly. Um, yeah, so I'm looking right now on eBay here, and I've got the link shared so everybody, or the video shared so everybody can see this here. This is pretty much like... Uh, a kit to go that you have to build and you can see what I was talking about with the square sort of uh, plates mm-hmm. here. All the adapters are basically like CNC carbon fiber plate that's squeezing together on regular off the shelf rods and then the motors on here, they always tell you like, yeah, it's rated for this or yeah, it's rated for that but the honestly the motors on these guys aren't as big or as strong as you could get with other units so mm-hmm. there is a little bit of uh, a compromise there and you do have to kind of assemble these tune them yourself and sort of get the controller up and running um most of them the alex uh, alexmos i don't know if i'm saying that correct uh that's that uh, control board is pretty much the standard one there's a a 32-bit version. I think there's a 64-bit version coming out as well. Interesting. So um, you can take a look at those. Uh, some of these, like, that's basically what you get right there showing the picture. It's the motors, some wires laying around, you know, the bits <laughs> and pieces. Uh, so it's some assembly required, but $489. Um, and, you know, if uh, uh, TV is is manufacturing a lot of these, they're... They're probably in the price range, I would say, maybe 600 bucks or so, 700 bucks, and then there's a markup for sales. So, uh, you know, you get more convenience with that, but you do pay for it. And if yep. you're handy, man, go for it. But if you're not, uh, especially with this stuff, man, it, 
you can dive in really deep. And with the controllers and setting everything up, man, I the reason you haven't seen very many three axis gimbal posts from DSLR film noob is because a DJ does not have time for that. And I <laughs> just did the douchebag uh, talk about myself in the third person. I don't have enough time to sit around and test these and set them <laughs> up. It's so much work. And then, you know, it might work for one setup and then it might not work for another setup. So be aware that you really need to be able to invest some time. If you're going to try and build one of these from scratch. Um, that was a pretty weird, uh, side <laughs> tangent there. Okay. Last few things I want to talk about here before we wrap up the show. Uh, Devin, we were kind of talking about this pre-show Microsoft's new spam in the corner of your windows. Yes computer basically um i don't know what the number was for the release update but if you clicked yes and installed windows 10 uh, you know well, yeah but the uh <laughs> the release package in the windows update or whatever oh, yeah. it's like five zero one nine seven five or something like that um yeah. it basically adds a little window to the side of your uh screen that says hey guys uh click on this and you get windows 10 so there's a few things we were talking about in in uh pre-production here uh, what are they going to do for licensing is one and Devin, you had a proposal what do you think they're going to do well it's it's all speculation we have uh we really have no idea um i'm pretty sure that they're not going to allow older licenses to substitute as licenses for the new versions because i could see that being very difficult uh with dealing with people who did do that upgrade in year one as opposed to didn't do that upgrade in year one so as well as people stealing licenses from other people what i could see happening uh because windows 8 had a has had a pretty big push towards having a login and i have been using uh the windows 10 rt uh quite a bit on my mobile devices and laptops and whatnot I do, I, I do think that maybe they would push licensing towards a user account as opposed to a key. Uh, you know, no one has said anything about it. It's just one of those things that I see could creep up um, and they could get away with it because they're offering 10 as a free upgrade. So uh, you, you, you wouldn't have much room to get mad at them because it's take it or leave it kind of an attitude. If you don't like uh, setting up an account with Windows in order to manage your licenses for your computers, uh, then don't install 10 because uh, we're <laughs> offering it for free. You know, so uh, part of me, though, you know, with things like that aside, I think that uh, Windows 10 is going to be good. I do think that it is where people should go. I don't think you should do it right away. I think give some people some time, especially with complicated software like Adobe. Uh, you never know what kind of things will creep up there because there is a lot of complexity to the way operating systems work these days as opposed to like 10 years ago. So um, it's very easy for things to kind of not match up and become a little bit uh, incompatible. So wait for everyone else to test it before you do. Uh, but from what I can tell, the system requirements are still the same as 7. Uh, I made the jump from 7 to 8.1 a while back because it boots faster. It actually, in my case, runs a little bit faster. But the minimum requirements has been the same since 7. And so everyone has really powerful machines now for the most part. And as long as Windows 10 maintains the speed that they gained in 8, um, all I see it doing is getting rid of a lot of that GUI people complained about in 8, stripping it away so it works the way it's supposed to work in different situations um, that whole dynamic, like, oh, if you've got a touchscreen, then we'll give you a touchscreen keyboard if you don't have a keyboard plugged in. That kind of stuff, I think that really should have been an eight. Uh, seeing them 
bring that into 10 shows that they're listening to people. They know people don't want this Metro thing. Um, so they're still trying to include it in a way in the start menu and other ways like that. But they're trying to create a unified experience. And that's exactly what Apple's been doing for a very long time. So it's taken Windows a while to get everyone on the same page. And I think that's what this free upgrade's all about, is getting everyone on the same page. Because I'm sure they want to drop support for 7, and very soon they want to drop support for 8. And they want to get kind of a unified operating system and get everyone on the same thing. Uh, after all, I mean, it's not, no one owns a copy of Windows anymore. Uh, what? With the hey, way now, licensing I... works. No, I, well, mean, I mean, with the way licensing works, you you own permission to use it uh if you read the license agreements which no one ever reads uh the end user license agreement the software is actually free you're simply paying for permission to use it uh that allows them to control how many times you install it and things like that if you if it is an actual exchange for goods then you could do whatever you want with it you could hack it you could install it on a bazillion things you could do whatever so that's kind of you know, we, we never owned Windows ever since, you know, like Windows 98. It's always been, you know, licensed to us the same way Adobe is. So I, I think Windows 10 is actually pretty, pretty good. And I probably will be installing it uh, as soon as it comes out on some of my non-primary systems just to play with it and see how it works with everything else. Uh, but by all means, there's no reason to not turn this upgrade down from what I can see unless they do something like, hey, you need a Windows account to get a license. Then yeah. <laughs> some people may have an issue with that because DJ over there is not wanting to sign up for any of that crap. OK, so I got one major complaint and actually this will fan out into many complaints. But first of all, <laughs> uh, the main complaint is that. Uh, Windows accounts are obnoxious. Like I already have accounts for everything. I don't need another account. There's the last thing I want is another freaking password <laughs> and everything else to remember and like put into that pile of other things that I have to log into. And so that's obnoxious. Uh, I just ran into this recently because in my old home I had a computer dedicated to television that was for Netflix and whatever, and it was running Windows Seven, so I could just launch Netflix in the browser. It was no big deal. But um, for a while, I've been limping along on a single computer, and it's my Windows 8.1 machine that I upgraded while having computer issues. And that unit, when you try to get Netflix to work, it's blocked in the browser. You can't watch it unless you log into your Microsoft account and install the Windows app that's available for Netflix. That is dumb. I don't want to do that. Dumb. I don't want to have to do that. It's irritating. And I have a Windows account because I had one for my uh, Xbox 360. But when the 360 got hacked a while back, the account got compromised. And now to get it to activate again, I have to jump through a bunch of hoops and try and get it logged in and do all this other crap. It's obnoxious. I don't want to have to do that. I pay for Netflix. Why can't I watch it in the browser? This is dumb. Also, there's other things like uh, trying to install Chrome on Windows 8.1. Uh, you install Chrome? No, you can't install regular Chrome. You need to go to the Windows App Store and get Chrome from there. Like the what? Really? <laughs> We're all moving Apple's way to the App Store. That that's frustrating. Now, on the positive side, I have been or I before I moved, I had a computer actually dedicated to running a, the beta version of Windows 10. So I was running the pre-release stuff and. and and kind of getting a feel for it, and they're doing a really good job. Uh, there's some extra things for uh, graphics support. Uh, they're, I believe they're launching DirectX 12 with this, so we're finally mm -hmm. going to see an upgrade to that, which is really nice. Uh, also, Windows is starting, to, uh, or Microsoft starting to implement that code once and 
and launch everywhere sort of format uh, that we've been promised for years and never really seen uh, with the <laughs> upgrade to the new Windows phones as well as the new mm-hmm. operating system. You'll be able to code once in uh, a, I guess, C plus format. I'm not sure what you code in for Windows applications. I mean, they haven't used Visual it's, Basic they, they in a long time. They probably have some it? kind of new version of Visual Basic. Is I it visual, what you think it's Visual that. Visual Basic no, no, Studio? No. I'm sure it's like a backbone of Java with a few other elements built on because obviously uh, C++ is, is so low, you know, it's so basic that you're not going to be able to create something that works on multiple kernels and multiple environments that way. So I'm sure they've got their own development environment, uh, kind of like the .NET, which for a lot of the stuff like, uh, say, you know, your Netflix or other little things like that. Uh, programming in that interface is just going to make sense and you program it once and then it works on everything. Uh, well, I thought that's your... what we were moving to with HTML5, though, because, you know, uh, Silverlight, well, which is a browser. Microsoft product, wasn't that uh, sort of the back end for <laughs> Netflix and a lot of these streaming services? And now yeah. they're moving over to an HTML5 uh, format as opposed to a proprietary Silverlight plugin that runs specifically yeah. for that? Um, I, well, you know, specifically, I look, really... you want to talk about Silverlight. I think Silverlight is genius. Uh, it just sucks that it's owned by, you know, Microsoft. And it's locked down. Yeah. I mean, it's not necessarily even who owns it, because Apple would do the same thing, too. It doesn't matter which side of the fence you're on. Uh, A lot of the technology that went into Silverlight was brilliant and worked great, and that's why Netflix wanted it, um, and they licensed and they used it. HTML5 is not quite there. YouTube has done a ton of runaround trying to get a Silverlight experience uh, out of, you know, HTML5 video and other things like that, but it's not there. Silverlight is just so seamless and so well built. That's how Netflix was able to create an entire empire upon it because the user experience was so good. Imagine, um, you know, YouTube buffering has really gone away because they've gotten really clever with it. Uh, But think of YouTube, you know, five or six years ago. It used to be that, you know, just sometimes because you're trying to access a video that's currently on a California server and hasn't been sent to your server, uh, it buffers when you're trying to watch standard def. You know, so... uh, so it's one of those things that it's a shame that it's kind of locked down. Um, and of course, an open standard makes a lot more sense because there's so many people who want to take advantage of it. Uh, but Silverlight is not evil. Silverlight's really good technology. <laughs> uh, it's just locked down. And so that's kind of unfortunate. But obviously, Netflix was able to profit off of it. Well, I think uh, if I don't give me or I might be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure uh, Silverlight uh, use is being discontinued uh, by a lot of these streaming services and Microsoft yeah. is no longer going to support it. Um, yeah, you know what will fix having stuff on one server clear <laughs> across the country? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. universal DNS, where DNS is everywhere. Like, you don't have, it's decentralized. You don't have to worry about going. It, that yeah. will fix everything. My computer <laughs> will have the, the largest lookup table ever, and it'll just mm-hmm. figure out what's going on. I don't know. Maybe not. Um, I'm not, <laughs> this isn't a coding show, and I'm not a coding no, expert. Not I've, I've done a lot of coding. Uh, Devin has as well. But anyway, <laughs> the idea idea behind the code once thing is you you code with whatever win or microsoft is offering and then you can launch it on both the ios platform the windows platform and the android platform as well as um any um you know apple stuff or windows stuff or whatever and you only have to change a few things uh the compiler basically takes care of all the hooks so you don't have to worry about accessing api stuff it's all like done mm-hmm. for you and then it's just a matter of like oh what screen am i you know generating this for right. or what you know what what device am i aiming at or whatever so and if that, that actually that works that could be handy 
Yeah, because I, for smaller things, obviously for something like Premiere, that's not going to happen because of the way it accesses hardware. Uh, but for something like your Netflix app, for your Angry Birds, for whatever else, these little apps that have kind of started taking over our lives uh, and have really shifted the way that software development works. Um, you know, imagine making one app. And, and that's part of Windows trying to get into that app game for their mobile phone market because, you know, Android and iPhone is so far ahead of them and they struggle to try to get developers to recognize the Windows phone. If you say, hey, you code for Windows instead of you code for the Windows phone and the Windows desktop and everything else, um, I think that that's going to pull a lot more people so that our Windows devices, whether they're tablets, phones, or uh, computers, all will be running kind of the same thing, which will make, you know, which w works great in a few ways too, because kind of like with the iTunes store, you make a purchase on one platform and then you would theoretically, unless they decide to micro charge everything, you'd have it for your other platforms as well. Uh, so it's one of those that if, uh, you know, a such and such, uh, I don't know, network uh, scanning app or something like that costs $5, you pay for it once and then it's on your laptop, your desktop and your phone and, you know, you can use it whenever you want. So, I'm excited for it, uh, but who knows what will really hold until they decide to release it. Um, I'm excited to see that it's free, and I think it's a big push to be like, hey, start developing for Windows. Developers, developers, developers. Uh, speaking of Adobe, I, didn't they just drop support for uh, their uh, Android platform Lightroom app? <laughs> I didn't see that, did Yeah, they? I think I saw that somewhere. <laughs> um, yeah, so and Adobe was one that tried this as well. They had a universal programming uh, type of device that would uh, generate stuff for both um, iOS as well as Android. It's kind of just some interesting aside. Uh, moving on down the line before we get into <laughs> yet another rat hole here, right. uh, there's a couple things I wanted to touch on here, and I'm going to bring this up right now um, and share my screen. Uh, so if there's any photos of anything that's is explicit, there's your warning. Probably not. I don't really <laughs> uh, put anything dangerous on there, but I'm going to share the screen right here this is amazing so i i used to and i'm guilty of this i used to like basically say why would you ever need uh, facial recognition on anything it's stupid you know but now that i'm using google photos uh, google photos basically allows you up to a 60 megapixel raw image uh uploaded for free that it doesn't eat up your band or eat up your storage space so i pay for uh drive right now and i think i have 150 gig or 200 gig and then you get unlimited as long as uh storage of photos as long as it's under um, 16 megapixel or it'll convert down to 16 megapixel or if the video is less than uh, I think 10 minutes or 10 gig I don't I don't remember which but there's limits for both of those so you can just basically point it at anything you want and I'll have a link to the app for Windows in the show notes there's also one for iOS you can um, basically point it at any image uh, folder that you have and it'll start just sending stuff to the web and the assistant is generating all this cool stuff I mean it's basically making these beautiful little layouts for me here I was at Ikea shopping for a TV stand here's some dog pictures my wife making faces as I wait for a shoot to get started uh, you know just random stuff like that and here is what's really cool. So you hit the search, and this is where I, I'm, like, covering you my own trail. Mind. Yeah, so uh, I always thought facial ser searching by face recognition was dumb, but now that I've tried it, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. So let me just click on this here. There's a bunch of faces of people that I've taken pictures of, uh, just uh, general randomness. Let's click on uh, Jeff here. So you can see that Jeff, over the years, has gained weight, changed facial hair, been in multiple locations. Here he is behind someone's finger. 
and Google was able to pick him out. <laughs> and I mean, you know no what? problem. It's, it's even it's even crazier than that. Um, I don't know if you have any photos uh, of this because a lot of people don't, but well, it'll actually track you all the way back to baby pictures. Yeah. Not so looking right here, this is a great example. If you look at this image right here, this is Jeff uh, last year at Christmas or no, at uh, Thanksgiving, I think. And this is him in his 20s. He's like 40, uh, 38 now. So he's he's very heavy set here, has an afro, uh, weird little goatee. He's passed out on the couch. <laughs> and we switch over to here, and now he's an older guy. He's very young, or I mean, very thin looking, completely different facial structure. And his eyes are closed in this one, a mouth agape, and his eyes aren't. And, uh, you know, it was able to it's figure crazy. out that that was him. And even from side angles, like, here's a, a fan family picture that's me as a young <laughs> punk band touring about but um yeah jeff was wearing his glasses and it was able to like detect that and figure it out and even to where it's like just random shots of him even in glasses and stuff google just picks it out and what's kind of cool and i don't know quite how they're doing this it, it is a bit creepy as well uh they do correlate your phone location with your uh, photos taken during a certain time. So you can sort by uh, satellite location, as in uh, you know cities and things like that, or it'll even recognize dogs and cats. Um, it did fail at cats. Here's some dog pictures that are labeled cats. <laughs> uh, yes, I have small dogs. That but is, man, that is it, difficult for a computer to decipher. Yeah, but it's but still like cars. Really handy. You can do a search for cars, and it'll find you mostly cars for me it found a few odd ends too it showed me a picture of a graphics card which i guess i did take a picture of it kind of like you would a car from like the three quarters <laughs> angle uh but still um the way it identifies objects as well um this is kind of like crazy because who would have thought it was possible but it's like becoming the answer you could type in food and it shows you food and it just understands that without a bazillion tags and everything else um automatic sorting it's it's ridiculous and i'm sure something like this um would have come to personal music collections if personal music collections didn't move into the cloud and move into uh on-demand service well i know that uh, um apple's uh iphoto had this sort of feature for quite a while and uh, mitch and a few other people have talked about it and told me like yeah it's great and i was kind of like whatever and then lightroom got it i still was like whatever i haven't even used the <laughs> the version that's available for lightroom yet and then I, you know, I was just excited about the storage. Like I keep a master copy of all my photos on the server, but what if my house burns down? You know, that way I can have at least a remote backup, yeah. even if it's a lower quality, I'll still have those images for my entire life saved somewhere, which is kind of handy. And so I just started pointing it at the drive and letting it go. And now that I see some of these, uh, ability to search through stuff, it's just wow, you know, this is really handy. And I mean, the face thing is awesome because you're like, oh yeah, I'm looking uh, for a picture of my friend Jenny from when she was 20 or, oh, I did this shoot with uh, uh, Jasmine and she had me do some headshots for her for a production that she's working on. Um, I can grab those and like it organizes and everything else. And then Assistant, it's that's a little wacky, but if you uh, also scroll over to the side here and, and check out your photo assistant, and let me share my screen again so you guys can see this. I'm just <laughs> I'm doing this behind the scenes so you can't see anything if I, I don't really want it to be seen. But I mean, it checks out locations. It like sets up some like it did this time lapse for me uh, without even like asking any questions. I was in a substation doing a safety video and I just set up a camera and took some stills and I forgot to make the time-lapse and then Google just put together this beautiful little time-lapse for me. 
Uh, really nice stuff like that. And even the little, like, hey, uh, what's going on here type of things, you know? I mean, look at this guy skateboarding, you know? Uh, just random stuff that's completely interesting and cool. Oh, there's me without a shirt on. What's that doing in here? Uh, okay, let's not share screen anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah, anyway, the the point I'm getting at is this is really <clears throat> handy. If you It's free. If you and already it's have, fast. Yeah, and it's really fast. Um, upload speeds are nice. I'm getting... Well, I do have a lot of ban uh, bandwidth here. I pay for uh, commercial service. I think I have 40 down and 10 up. So uh, Google Photos is uh, being nice and utilizing 5.5 meg up and then leaving me with enough bandwidth to do regular stuff so it's not eating up all of my upload stuff. So I have a little bit of bandwidth left. <laughs> but basically, this is really cool. Devin, are you going to – you've messed with this, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I installed it on my phone, and I use it to keep pictures – uh, definitely off of my phone because uh, your phone can get stolen at any time. Uh, so it's it's one of those that I'm always concerned about um, something breaking and losing photos and stuff because it's usually that's the camera, um, at least for me, but I think a lot of people tend to have on them at most times. Yeah. And so that's the one that ends up getting some kind of like rare in the moment uh, photos that I wouldn't have been able to capture otherwise. So having a copy of that, uh, I know, you know, this used to be a system to try to push it into Google Plus, so then you take your photos and automatically share them. Um, but here, I just like that whole fact of having a backup. And uh, and also, too, it's just kind of fun to go through old photos and make you, uh, you know, like re-explore re uh, your history of photography. Yeah, it's a finding folder. I, I had a digital camera in like 1998 when you know, or 95 <laughs> when it, like you didn't even really have digital cameras. I had like yeah. one of the Sony, I don't remember what it's called, but it used floppy disks. And, um, uh, I shot a bunch of stuff with that and it's just like, that was sitting in a folder somewhere that was in my collection that I hadn't even looked at. And suddenly it like uploaded and started generating auto awesome stuff with like pictures mm -hmm. of me with ex-girlfriends kissing and, you know, like <laughs> random concerts that I was at and, uh, places I was touring with the band and so on. And, and you're like, Oh wow. And then, you know, it puts them into nice convenient thing sorts them by location and does all this other stuff and now you have a convenient way to like scroll through some of that stuff and actually find things again especially if you you know you have maybe a birthday or some kind of event coming up and you need to like find pictures of family or, or whatever that's really handy so definitely check it out um that's enough ranting about uh, <laughs> uh that particular thing uh, there is however a windows app as well as uh the mobile phone apps i've got the windows app linked in the show notes so you can check that out um last Last thing on the list, and I'm not going to talk too much about this. Uh, we mentioned the 4K Seiki monitor, the SM40 UNP, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and that is a 4K uh, Super MVA, which is like kind of between a TN panel and IPS panel. Uh, that's a thousand dollar 40 inch 4k panel uh strictly designed for computers and not a television retrofit type of deal uh but somebody pointed out the phillips 4065 uc and i think this is a va panel if i'm not mistaken it's about a hundred dollars cheaper and the reason i want to bring this up is because he mentioned that as an alternative to this to save a little bit of money but i'm gonna share my screen here again and if you look here uh warehouse deals on amazon has been selling this uh, monitor for about eight seventy nine. Uh, looks like yeah, fulfillment by Amazon right here. So 
the price has already come down on the Seiki Pro SM40 UNP uh, to under $900, and uh, the retail is 1000 So um, if you don't mind going with a slightly used uh, damage container or scratch or whatever, uh, there are deals to be had on Amazon. Uh, d- uh, you've basically looked at both of these, Devin. Do you think there's any reason to jump on one versus the other? Do you think the Super MVA versus VA panel is, is worth the extra couple hundred bucks? Uh, you know what? For me, they're so close in price. I know that sounds crazy because they're a hundred dollars apart, but uh, I feel like in both of these cases, if I was willing to buy either one, I'm already dedicated to spending a thousand dollars on a forty-inch uh, UHD monitor. And in that case, yeah, I would take the MVA because uh, I've been using IPS for a couple of years now. And once you go IPS, it's really hard to go back to uh, the TN panel, especially if you're spending all day looking at your video and looking at color and everything else. So for me, uh, I, nothing about this Philips really draws me to it um, because the MVA for me is kind of a clear winner. In, in the case, just because of the price, if the Phillips was maybe $200 cheaper, then we could talk. Uh, but, I, you know, I'm kind of waiting to see an IPS 40-inch 4K come out uh, for $1,000, and that would totally be a steal for me. Yeah, I don't know if we're going to see that till the end of this year. Um, one other thing to note about the Seiki is that they are releasing a firmware update for it uh, that will give you uh, uh, what I, I believe um, DisplayPort version 1.4 and HDMI 2.0 as opposed to, I think this is rocking, what, 1.4 or 1.2, something like that. So those are things that are on the horizon. Uh, I don't know if we're going to see a price drop, major price drop on this until uh, more competitors start coming out. Uh, one other thing to note on the Seiki monitor is that if you swing over to PCPer.com, uh, They've got a good review of this monitor, but they've also got a good color profile where they basically went through and tuned this with a calibration unit and got everything set up to where they were getting very close to uh, Adobe RGB uh, color levels. So if you check that out, you can download that, um, install that, and kind of get this to where, you know, I wouldn't say perfect for grading, but definitely pretty decent for the price and for a panel that big um still not sure where i will find room on my desk to put this <laughs> but it is on my i want to buy list so 40 inches of awesome oh yeah um yeah okay so on that note we are wow 24 minutes over so we are. Devin, where can people find you on the internet uh, impulsenetworks.tv where you'll find uh, reviews of gear and kickstarter crap that you probably shouldn't have bought You can find (laughs) this podcast on SoundCloud, on iTunes, and anywhere else that podcasts are distributed. You can also swing over to the YouTube channel, look for One Lone Dork or DSLRFilmNoob.com for even more information. As always, guys, thanks for listening, watching, or however you ingest this podcast. I will talk to you next week. Devin will be back yet again. On that note, talk to you next time. gonna happen once you know man i had all that dramatic outing going and then i just hit the wrong button you set yourself up for failure no one to blame but yourself